Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. That's right. With Chris still out of town, I'm joined by my very own better half, Dr. Nikki. Hey y'all. So Nikki, you are a family practice physician. And while you are of course an avid car enthusiast, I thought it might be fun to switch gears a little bit on the show and take advantage of our expertise now. As many of our listeners know, besides cars, I, in particular, like to delve into obscure history on a wide range of topics. We've done an entire series on trains, Skunk Works planes, NASA, and many others. So, with the doctor in the house, I thought it might be interesting to look into the history of medical devices. The weird, the grotesque, the disturbing, and the downright strange. Now... Don't worry, I'll be the first to admit that I find most things medical absolutely disgusting, as you can attest to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try to keep this as interesting and not repulsive as possible. Either that or I'll just dump, end up vomiting all over the microphone. Either way, it should be quite fun and entertaining. <laughs> uh, to start out, let's start with one of the, uh, the origin of some instruments that are actually still commonly used today, as I understand. Maybe I'll be wrong and you can correct me as we go. So, let's start in 1816. A French doctor by the name of René Lenec was practicing medicine at the Necker and Fonce Malades Hospital in Paris. Wow, your French is terrible. It's very terrible, as our listeners know. But, yes, okay. No, yeah, and you actually did go to Paris or France for a while, so... Yeah. You're better at this than me. Uh, regardless, as part of a standard exam, then as now, apparently Dr. Lensek Len Len sure, would listen to patients' hearts. However, back in that day and age, a doctor would literally just hold his ear up to a patient's chest and listen. And as you can imagine, that can get pretty smelly when you're getting close to people's armpits. Well, here's what's interesting. The story is kind of confused. I read two conflicting reports what happened next. Some accounts say there was an especially large man whose weight prevented the doctor from hearing his heart entirely. Another account states that Dr. Lanek was not comfortable placing his ear directly onto a woman's chest to listen Ugh. to her heart. Oh my. How scandalous. With the decolletage. What is that? It's the upper part of your breast area. Oh. Fancy. Is that French? Oui. <laughs> okay. So out of necessity, the first stethoscope was invented. Now, our Dr. Lenneck observed that a rolled piece of paper placed between the patient's chest and his ear could amplify heart sounds without requiring physical contact, mind you. Yes. Lenneck's device was actually similar to the common ear trumpet of the day, which was a historical form of hearing aid which I have to imagine was not very, um, what's the word? Not super great? Well, not only that, like hearing aids today, they make them, you know, flesh colored and they're in your ear. This was probably a little more obtrusive with literally horns sticking out the side of your head. Could be fashionable in gold. Maybe. That's true. But regardless, that was the ear horn. So Lenex called his device the stethoscope, which I didn't include here, but stetha and scope is some Latin thing about like hearing device. Uh, this rudimentary device was literally just a wooden tube. It wasn't until 1851 that Irish physician Arthur Lyrid invented a bioral or double ear stethoscope. And the following year in 1852, George Philip Cameron perfected the design of the stethoscope instrument that used both ears for commercial production, which has become the standard ever since. Now, Kaman also wrote a major treatise, 
on diagnosis by auscultation, which refined bioral stethoscope made possible. What does that mean? So basically means that they're not using the wooden tube anymore. Right. They're using the flexible plastic, generally speaking, tubing. Okay. And that you can hear out of both ears much better combined with the single one in the middle. Right. And here's what's interesting. By 1873, there were actually descriptions of a differential stethoscope that could connect to slightly different locations to create a stereo effect. Yep. Is that a thing? Do you still do that? Well, you listen to different parts of the chest or body okay. so that you can hear different parts of it. Right. But I mean, I, you don't get like stereo effects by putting two different like leads on people. That would be pretty weird. Yeah, it apparently never became common. Fast forward to the 1940s when Rappaport Rappaport and Sprague designed a new stethoscope, which became the standard, consisting of two sides, one of which is used for the respiratory system and the other for the cardiovascular system, which I never knew. That's why there's two sides to the stethoscope. Yeah, and you can flip them back and forth. Right, but I didn't realize one was to listen to like your lungs and the other to your heart. Yeah, I just or, thought, or like, especially the neck too. Oh, you use it on the neck? Yeah, so you can hear like the carotid arteries, the big arteries in the neck. Does it just sound like... Well, it depends. If they've got like narrowing of the arteries, it sounds a lot different, like higher velocity. Ooh, okay, so like higher so flow. So you don't want it to sound like... Gotcha. You know what I'm you saying? You want more... I mean, kind of. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Like that. That's pretty yeah. close. This can be used for medical purposes. documentation purposes. Yes, in exactly. the future, yes. Um, anyways, that was the invention of the stethoscope. And I do have a whole list of other devices to go through. But before we do, let's take a moment to talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. As Nikki knows, I wear all of their t-shirts all the time. I love that I basically don't have to go shopping now because every month I get a cool new car t-shirt, which I love. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. All right, Nikki, our next device dates back to 1895. That's where German physicist professor Wilhelm Röttgen was conducting experiments with cathode tubes. Which, because I know inquiring minds want to know, is a glass bulb with two metal electrodes, one at either end. So kind of like a light bulb, but there's no filament in the middle of it. Yep. Now, when a high... Do you know about cathode tubes? I mean, a little bit. Okay, I really don't. (laughs) When a high voltage is applied between these electrodes, it is in a vacuum as well, like a light bulb. uh, Electrons are then projected in a straight line from the cathode. So our German physics professor wrapped one of these cathode tubes in black cardboard to block out any visible light. What Rotkin, this physicist, then saw was a faint green glow, green glow coming from the tube. So he could actually see light coming through the cardboard. He found that whatever this energy was, it could pass right through things. He found they could also pass through books and papers on his desk. Rotkin discovered using these seemingly magical energy rays had medical implications as well when a picture of his wife's hand formed on a photographic plate. When his wife saw the picture, she said, quote, oh, 
I have seen my death. Because <laughs> it was, of course, the first x-ray. So she saw the bones in her hand and a, like outline of a ring. That'd be pretty creepy, wouldn't it? The first time ever seeing that, you're basically seeing a skeleton Ugh. in your own body. That is weird. Uh, clinical use of the x-ray flourished with little regard for potential side effects from radiation exposure because we didn't know about that at the time. There were a few early suspicions from scientists including Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, and William and William J. Morton, which I don't know, uh, each of who these guys reported injuries they believe resulted from experiments with x-rays. But overall, early use of x-rays was widespread and unrestrained, even to the degree that during the 1930s and 40s, shoe stores offered free x-rays so that customers could see the bones in their feet. That's so weird. Can you imagine going into a store today? Yeah, and they're like, well, to get the right fit of the shoe here, we're going to actually x-ray your foot. Yeah. And then you can get the right shoe. That's very weird. I mean, the correct shoe is usually pretty important, but... But usually you don't need to get an x-ray to do that? No. Also, that's a lot of unneeded um, radiation exposure, I would imagine. Yeah, and when they first started doing x-rays, the amount of radiation was crazy. Oh, I suppose, because it so, wasn't as refined, so no. you needed a lot more. And they, Yeah, and they didn't know how much they needed to actually get the picture. So they just blasted just your body with it. Totally blasted with it, which can cause a lot of problems, you can imagine. But yeah. But nowadays, don't worry, we don't do that. Okay. So if you think about a typical chest x-ray, so you're looking- Why do you do a, an x-ray on the chest? Yeah, so it's a good question. Typically, we're looking for infection or a broken bone. How does infection show up on an x-ray? I thought it was just bones, basically. Yeah, so- it will show bones as looking white. Okay. And the lungs are filled with air, so that should look black. Right. If there's something in between the lung or in the lung that uh -huh. shouldn't be there, it'll look more white. Okay. So the infection will show up looking white. Is that because it's fluid and it's like more dense? Yep. It's fluid or it's bacteria or pus, things like that. Gotcha. I didn't include it here in the story, but there were a lot of accounts of guys like losing hair after doing x-rays or yep. like their hand would be burnt. Yep. Just going to show how much radiation they actually use. Yeah. We now have a far better understanding of the risks associated with x-ray radiation and have developed protocols to greatly minimize unnecessary exposure, like you mentioned. And while x-rays remain a cornerstone of modern medicine, their discovery paved the way and developed the today's broad spectrum of imaging techniques, including magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. What is that used for? So that's used for looking more at like tendons or tissue okay. and really bones. Okay. It's a much more um, fine picture sure. than an x-ray, which just can't give us as much detail. Sure. Okay. Because that's basically an x-ray, if you think about it, is just you're seeing a shadow. Yep. Right? Pretty much what penetrates through it or not. Okay. And MRI, I don't know how that works, but that gives you a better picture. A lot of magnets. Oh, Okay. Something with magnetic fields. Yep, a lot of magnets. Oh, that's the one where the thing spins yes. really quick and you yes. can't have any metal in you. Yes. Otherwise, it'll shoot out into the machine. Pretty much. And then all the movies, they show it like blowing, blowing up. up. Yeah. Oh okay. Uh, also on the list that this led to was computed tomography or CT scans. What is that used for? So CAT scans oh. or CT scans. Well, where's the A? Well, I don't know. So it's just CT, but they call it a CAT scan? There's like some other A in there that's okay. like a minimal Computed, A. Computed, automated at, tomography, we'll something say. Like, something like sure. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's a really quick test as, okay. com as opposed to like an MRI. An MRI, you have to sit forever. Why is that? 
just because of how the imaging actually processes. Okay, so, so it needs a long time to basically develop or yes. render. Yes. So let's say you were like in a car accident okay. and they wanted to check to see if you had any bleeding in your brain. Okay. They would not do an MRI because that would take forever. They oh. want a quick result. So they'd send you through this CAT scanner. Okay. Do we know how a CAT scanner works? I didn't look into this, so I'm just putting you on the spot. Uh, yeah. So there, there are a lot of fancy things that happen in there. Okay. But basically, they slide you into the tube. Uh-huh. They take like a whole bunch of rapid sequence pictures and they move you out. The computer makes a model of it and okay. then you can actually see wow. what's going on. Of course, another imaging um, uh, technology is ultrasound, mm -hmm. which uses, uh, as, it, as it says, ultrasound. So it's basically like radar, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally like radar. That's crazy. Uh, echocardiography, mm -hmm. or however you say that, yep. EKG. And that's just, that's the, the, you see your pulse of your heart, right? So... What an EKG is, is it's, they put stickers or electrodes on your chest uh -huh. at different specified locations, and then that measures the electrical activity occurring in your heart. Okay. That's listed here, but that's not really an imaging technique. Well, you do get an image from it. I suppose. You get the little graph, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, so that's obviously not a bad legacy for an accidental discovery of x-ray. So we're going to fast forward to the 1940s for our next invention. Cardiac surgeon Wilfred Bigelow and his research fellow John Callaghan at the Banting Institute were using hypothermia to slow the heart down enough to enable open heart surgery. Which is so cool. And now someone's calling me. We are now joined by Mr. Chris Cluon. Hey, Chris. Hello. I'll even slow down so you guys can hear me better. And it's not just 90 mile an hour wind. Yeah, so you are on your way back from the Rucklos rally, right? I am. I'm. I don't really know where I am. Okay. I've. Uh, I just got. I just hopped back on the freeway. I just spent the last. Sometimes it's one fourteen. That means I spent seven or eight hours driving around the back roads of West Virginia and Southern Ohio. West Virginia, Virginia. Mountain Mama. Take you home. Yep. Did you just play so that song on repeat? I should, absolutely. I yeah. met a guy, I was, uh, last thing I did before I hopped on the freeway was have a hot dog at this little hot dog place, like Jen's Hot Dog, okay. or Jane's Hot Dog, or something like that. But just before that, I was uh, on Highway 124, must have been either West Virginia or Ohio, I don't really know. And uh, I drove by this place that looked like, if you were going to imagine what a place where... Uh, Mike from American Pickers would stop. Yeah. Like where his van would literally start on fire and <laughs> slow down so fast. <laughs> it was this place. There's like a rusty light pole hanging outside with a little sign that says shell. It's all rusty and rusty, like dripping and bleeding down. Uh -huh. And uh, there's like Esso signs and Philip Six and all, but it's all shit, right? It's all just junk, so old and rusty. And this building is like a old Here's like wood frames, here uh, siding, building, two stalls. Inside, it's a dude named Mike. I said, hey, Mike. I, I turn around and come back. He's like, yeah, that's usually what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you, did you pick up any treasures? Uh, no, I didn't really try to buy anything from him. I just kind of wanted a memento. Yeah. But he has like a, I said, well, what do you do? He's like, oh, well, now I'm retired. He, he was Mike and like two of his teeth. We're all retired, and uh, he had like an old. Did you say Mike and two of two of his teeth? Yes. 
that's all that that's all that exists. Gotcha. Yeah, two, yes, uh, I got it now. Two incisors. That was about all that was, that was all that was there. Well, you and, know, uh, I'm yeah, glad like, you're oh, specifying since we're doing a medical edition of the podcast. Yes, yes, it is. It was a stark reminder of what would happen if I don't brush my teeth. Anyway, they had like a Z28 in the back, and he had like a junkyard, like in the mountains. He's like in a just like in the mountains, and he's got a junkyard back for bears and old dog pickup trucks and everything. And uh, we, talk, we just sat by, sat down with me. He had like three chairs sitting right there. And uh, he offered me a beer. I did not want a beer. But he had, I think he had three beers in the 40 minutes I was there. And it was 10.30 in the morning. All right. Good for Mike. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was well on his way. We just sat there and I hung out. And so what do you do? What do you, oh, I used to park cars out. I used to have a job. And once everything turned over to computers, that was it for me. And blah, 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 blah. He's got his wrenches all over the wall. It looks like he saved every badge that ever came on a car, saved it, and put it on the wall. It's awesome. I said, hey, Mike, can I take your portrait? And yes, so I took his picture sitting in the garage. And this guy was like, was well, not Lloyd. If you remember Lloyd, the guy right. that we met on the way back from the Hugo. It wasn't Lloyd, per se, but it was Lloyd, right? It was like yeah. a 71-year-old guy. Character, alone. had a bunch of stories. Yeah, like, if you imagine, like, an old dude that looks, you look like there's, I guarantee you, Mike has a, a, a still behind his house. Oh, 100%. There's no way that he doesn't. If he doesn't, then <laughs> I, I don't know. He, he absolutely did. He had like a long beard, and he had a little leather hat with like a little, he had like a little Chrysler badge from like a Chrysler Imperial, like pinned to the front of the cap. It looked like the hat was a, you know, the old hat that the Confederate Army used to wear, the little gray hat with the first one top. I can picture it. It was like that, but it was leather. And he had one of those, and he had, like, his little army stuff in there, and he had his little Confederate flag hanging inside, and we talked politics a little bit, we talked life, we talked collecting things, and he says a million people have offered to buy that shell time. Yeah. And then, like I said, it's a, it's a rusty light pole with, like, a, a porcelain lamp hanging above it, and it's old shell, like yellow and red, or it was yellow and red. And I said, well, what if people offered you for it? He's like, the most I've ever had offered was $1,500, and that wasn't even close. Yeah. So he obviously no, knows I, what some of his stuff is worth, but... I don't think he gives a shit. He's not selling anything. Right. His sister just is not interested in selling anything. I offered to buy, like, uh, he had, like, a Ohio Highway 35 sign that had a couple bullet holes in it, and it was just rough. There was no white left, like a like a federal highway sign. Not an interstate, but a highway like white okay. number. Yeah, I got it. And it was smart. I'm like, it's cool. I want it. How much do you want for that? $500. Okay. I can't afford anything. Go find me something. I said, go find me something that I can take home to remember you by. Not a flipper, not yeah. a picker. I just want something to remember that I was here. All right, hold on. He goes back in and comes back out with those, uh, these old labels that went, out, you know, went over the top of the 7 Up, uh, like a 7 Up bottle. Okay. And they say, like, get real action with 7 Up. 7 Up, you're a third away. 6.39 cents plus deposit. And it's like a little thing that says, and just, that would slide over the top of this. It's kind of frivolous. I was hoping he would give you like a crescent wrench. Yeah. You know, he had all kinds of homemade tools that were like ground away and stuff. I don't know. Just everything you imagine a guy with a Confederate flag hanging in his garage that worked on cars <laughs> and that was a soldier in Vietnam. Yeah. Which I used to work on old cars with no hoist, no lift, nothing used to have. That's like what his garage looked like. And I was really, I got to take him gracious enough to say, let me get 
oh, gracious enough. I think he said racist enough. Uh, and uh, I left there, and there's this dude in a, like a Hyundai accent with, like, okay. uh, Trump stickers all over. I mean, I am in God, right? I am in backwoods, West Virginia. Right. And he's got, like, a, like a Hyundai thing with Biden is not my president. Trump this, Trump that, whatever. Like, he follows me. I'm like, oh, no, what's this? Now I, you're like, in trouble. I'm like some guppy with my Porsche or whatever. Right. And, and him and his, I pull up to the hot dog place, and him and his buddy come out. I'm like, oh, man, sweet car. I've never seen one of these before. <laughs> I talked to them for a while, and I mentioned that I was over at Mike's place. Like, oh, yeah, it was Mike with the junkyard. Like, I think everybody must know. <laughs> everybody. Like, oh, yeah, Mike Powell with the junkyard. Yeah, 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 I know that guy. I got a couple of running boards for my 51 guy. Yeah, guy. of course. Yeah. So I talked to them for a little while, and I, I was going to buy them hot dogs for lunch. They had to go do something. They, they went onward. So and you're just kind of you're just life. down there making friends with all the good old boys. Making friends with the good old boys. The good, oh, that's the song, too. I'm going to have to play that one. Where yeah, you better do that. Boy. You better. I'm not going to go with the podcast, but it's good now. Oh, uh, well. That should be the outro for the podcast. We'll see. I think. Yeah. <laughs> all right, what we're going to get back about? into it. We are talking about the, the uh, most horrific medical devices in history. Ooh, it's yeah. got to be like the it's got to be like the first catheter. That's oh, I I didn't want to include that one because it grossed me out too much. But yes, the catheter I'm was just, on there. It was a metal tube guessing. with like spikes. Sometimes so you just have to pee. Out. Yeah, you just need help peeing. Oh man! Ugh. No, no, no! Ugh. All right, well, I'll let you guys get back to it. All right. All see right. you later. Bye, Probably. Chris. Yeah, we'll see you later. Have Bye. fun. Bye. <laughs> okay. Back to our stories. So cardiac surgeon Wilfred Bigelow and his research fellow John Callahan at the Banting Institute were using hypothermia to slow the heart down enough to enable open heart surgery. When cooled below a certain temperature, the perfectly functional heart became immobile due to lack of cardiac depolarization. Whatever that means. Dun, dun, dun. Electrical activity. Okay, so they basically just froze the heart. Uh, Bigelow's team was then stymied, however, by the problem of how to induce cardiac contraction during hypothermia. Yes. Because now they want it to actually pump. Yeah, they sure do. Mm -hmm. So Hops happened to observe that an electrical impulse would cause the heart to contract and that repetitive stimuli would allow this to occur over a prolonged time. Hops and others went on to develop a series of experiments to refine this process for pacemaker-induced cardiac stimulation. Hops finally created a device that resembled a small table radio measuring 30 centimeters in length using vacuum tubes to generate pulses and was powered by a 60 hertz household current. Hops then developed transvenous catheter electrodes, which could be passed through the external jugular vein and eliminate the need to open the chest for heart stimulation. And supposedly those same catheter electrodes that were part of the original pacemaker continue to be used in today's modern implantable versions. Yeah, the pacemaker itself is such a cool thing. It's like this little pocket they put in the chest. Okay. They put a little battery pack in there and then... How do you change the battery? Yeah, they all they have to do is like numb the top of the skin. Okay. Make a small incision, take the battery out and put a new one in. So you do have to cut open the skin to change a battery. Yeah. So it's How about, frequent do you have to do a battery change on I yourself? I think now, well, you don't do it yourself. No, true. <laughs> no, you don't, no. 
Why can't they make these things? Like, you know how your phone can charge via, um, what do you call it? It's it's where you just put it on the pad because you don't need to plug it in. Right. Can't they do that for pacemakers now? Well, you don't really, they don't really want to do that too much because of all the electrical. Oh, right. I suppose you don't want to introduce more. Yeah, because you can actually shut a pacemaker off by putting by putting a, a certain magnetized thing over it. Oh, really? Yeah. So if people at you know near the end of life don't want their pacemaker on anymore, okay, they can just bring a magnet in and turn it off. Oh, seriously? Yeah, it's really interesting how they can do it. But yeah, they change the battery about every ten years or so. Okay, depending so it, on what it, the model good, is. Yeah. yeah so it lasts span. it lasts a long time, and most people have no trouble getting a new battery put in. Okay, and I didn't cover it here in my research, but didn't the first implantable pacemaker happen at the U of M? So I don't know if it was the first, but one of the like founding the pioneers, yeah, maybe. yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, who that was Doctor Earl Bakken, right? Yeah, exactly, and he did actually studies on EKGs in whales. Why? So he was really interested in electrical activity. He helped found Medtronic. Oh, that's right. Yep, and so he was really interested in kind of electrical activity in general and specifically with the heart. So he studied whale electrical activity in EKGs, which How was, do you do that? Yeah, crazy cool. It's Like he, did he go up to whales and put electrodes on them? No, he did something with sonar. Oh wow. Or so, I don't know. He was trying to explain it to us, but it was kind of confusing to be honest. Yeah, because um, you actually met him and were able to I guess study a little bit quote unquote under him. Yeah, it was really cool. Um you know, I spent a, a couple days with him in Hawaii where he lives now. Yep. And just kind of looked through his museum, his work. He even has a pool that is the shape of a pacemaker. Oh, seriously? Oh, yeah, he is. He's yeah, all about it. He's all about it. <laughs> um, so, no, it was, it was pretty cool that, you know, kind of homegrown here in Minnesota that we can do that. Yeah. I, there's another kind of interesting tie-in, too. If listeners of the podcast remember Alex Nelson, who's a friend of ours, he supposedly met Bakken as a child and did he, like, presented some engineering thing to him, which makes sense because Alex is now a genius mechanical engineer. But right, it's just funny, small world, all these degrees of separation. So, moving right along in our story with horrendous medical devices. So far, these haven't been horrendous. These are just, oh. like, interesting ones that happen to still exist. Yes. Now we get into the more... Um, interesting devices. For example, leeches. Leeches have been used for medicine for over 2,500 years. They were popular in earlier times because it was widely thought that most diseases were caused by an excess of blood. Which, how does one come to that conclusion? Can you explain that to me? So I think the original thought was that the body has humors, they called them. Okay. And so if you were out of balance of your humors... Is that like Jake's too funny? No. (laughs) It's like something they called like blood, fluid. They were the humors. Okay. So they needed to kind of. some sort of like life forces that needed to be balanced. Yes, like the good and the bad. So they needed to do some bloodletting to Uh rebalance things. So get rid of the blood to balance it out with these other fluids. Yes. Okay. Did they ever let other things? Or like get rid of other things? I don't think so. Okay. I think it was just the the blood was thought to balance it somehow. Gotcha. That's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as recently as the 19th century, leeches were used to treat everything from tonsillitis to hemorrhoids. You can imagine what both of those treatments would have involved. How do you get a leech on your tonsil? I guess carefully without swallowing it. Ugh. However, it does turn out that leeches are still used in certain medical practices even today. Picture this. 
chopping up a delicious steak with a big meat cleaver and wham, off comes your right index finger. Now picture a doctor carefully sewing the finger back on and within hours, the finger is blue and swollen with blood, which is absolutely disgusting. But here comes the interesting part. When a finger or thumb is reattached, it's relatively easy to hook up the arteries because they're thicker and tougher. Veins, on the other hand, are fragile and crumple easily. Sidebar, what's the difference between an artery and a vein? So an artery brings the blood from the heart uh-huh. to the rest of the body. So okay. it's oxygen rich. Sure. The vein, which you typically think of as you know, varicose veins, they're kind of bluish looking. Right. Those bring the blood that has already delivered the oxygen from the body back to the heart. Okay, so I'm thinking in terms of engines, you have your oil pump, which is the mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. And so you have your oil supply line yep. and your oil return line. Yes. That is arteries and veins yes. or vice versa. Yes. yes. Um, however, with this uh, hypothetical finger that I cut off, uh, until new capillaries can reconnect these damaged veins, what you end up with is blood with a one-way ticket to a reattached finger. So basically in our oil scenario there, you don't have your oil supply line hooked up yet. With no veins to carry it back out, the finger swells up and chokes itself off with blood clots. Leeches, it turns out, are still one of the best methods to fix this predicament and are ideal in this situation because they suck the blood slowly and steadily. After all, if you drain the blood out too fast, you may as well have not bothered to reattach the finger in the first place. The interesting thing about leeches, too, is that when they are sucking the blood, they secrete a small amount of a chemical that prevents blood clotting. Yes, that is... I had it in here. You just got ahead ahead of me. Did I steal your thunder? You did. I'm just going to continue where I was. To drain blood at just the right rate without leeches, surgeons sometimes turn to an even more disgusting and less effective procedure that involves ripping off a fingernail and scraping the nail bed raw so it bleeds at a slow and steady rate. Blort. Yeah, we don't do that. Given the choice, most doctors and patients opt for the leeches, obviously. Leeches, as you mentioned, secrete natural anticoagulants, which of course, are what stop blood from turning into a scab. And uh, that prevents the blood from clotting. One of these chemicals, hirudin, hirudin, H-I-R-U-D-I-N, hirudin, is so powerful that it's being studied to possible use as a therapeutic drug for people who have heart attacks and stroke conditions. Hmm. Thanks to leeches. These chemicals allow the wound to bleed slowly, even after leech has been removed while the patient's new veins are still forming. Seems like a terrible, just like you're bleeding everywhere. No, it's pretty slow. Okay. It's not, think about, you know, in like horror slasher movies, uh-huh. you see like the blood squirting out. Right. That's an artery, not a vein. I see. Not the high pressure source. Not the high pressure I gotcha. source. Okay. Uh, however, back in the 1800s, when live leeches were unavailable, doctors could opt for the artificial leech. This metal cylinder with blades was used to perform the ever-popular bloodletting procedure of old. Its rotating blades cut into the skin while the tube suctioned the blood out. Nick, have you ever used an artificial leech to drain blood in your patients? No, we just drain the blood from the patient if they need it. When do you need to drain blood? So some people can have a condition where their blood is too thick. Don't you just take aspirin for that? Well, not necessarily. So we measure how much blood people have as something called hemoglobin, Okay. right? And if your hemoglobin level is super high, which can happen in people who don't get much oxygen, so like smokers or if people live at really high altitudes. Oh, interesting. um, Things like that, or from conditions that are genetically inherited, sometimes they'll need their blood to be let, basically. But not, we don't use leeches. We just drain their blood. So you just leave like a syringe? Yeah, or they donate it. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's if you have thick blood. Yes. It's like a 50 weight. 
Yes. Oil instead of like a 10, 10 W30 or something. Yeah. They're running the That's it. Weight. That's totally Can't it. Can't have that. No. Um, I'm just, this whole like bloodletting thing, aside from obviously like good medical practices, I'm thinking back to when you talked about like the humors and obviously we needed to drain yeah. out. Whatever happened to Socrates and his oath of do no harm? Like what, aren't they obviously harming someone by doing this or they thought they were helping? They thought they were helping just like right now when we quote bloodlet. Yeah. Or people donate blood because their blood's too. That's really weird. I didn't know that was still a thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, continuing up the line in accordance with gruesomeness was the hernia clamp. Dun, dun, dun. First off, can you as politely as possible explain what a hernia actually is? So typically a hernia is something that people will have in their abdominal area. So in their belly area. Um, And it can happen when the bowel comes through the abdominal wall. Okay. It's not like it's just sticking out. I mean, it's still covered by skin. Okay. But But it comes through like the structure of the Of the wall. wall. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well- Doctors in the 1850s repaired said hernia by inserting this tool into the area. This thing would then be in place for weeks while scar tissue formed on it to help seal your repaired hernia. And as I'm looking at an illustration of this thing, it looks like a giant vice grip pliers. And how on earth was this supposed to help a patient? I don't know. What do you do with a hernia now? Now we, depends on the size of the hernia. Okay. But if it's, you know, big enough to actually repair then th- what they'll typically do is they'll go in and they'll put mesh in place. So they'll basically recreate the abdominal wall. Okay, so you're not cutting anything off. No. You're clamping it off. Unless something is, like the bowel is dead in there. Okay, well, we won't go there. Dead Speaking bowel. of not really helping patients, though, medicine also has a long history of doctors simply lopping off problems they didn't yet know how to fix. From the pre-antibiotic bacteria of old, infection has always been a major reason for amputations. While this is horrific enough a procedure to imagine... It's especially so when you realize the vast majority of amputations were done without any sort of anesthesia at all. It's quite terrifying to note that doctors often took pride in the practice, and their instruments used for the purpose reflected this. Amputation saws frequently featured ornate decorative swirls, grooves, and other designs that were, ironically, a place for germs to breed and is obviously counterproductive to cutting off an infection. Now, it's my understanding that amputations are still rarely needed in modern day medicine, right? I don't know that I would say rarely needed. Are so they like frequently? Fairly frequently, yes. Really? Yeah, especially for Why? People, especially with so people who have conditions like diabetes where they don't have, you know, good control of their blood sugar. Right. Will have problems with their their blood getting to their toes or to the Well, fingers. I thought that's why we stuck a leech on it. <laughs> That doesn't help with their sugar problem. So when when you gotta sh- get a really tasty or hungry leech, I don't know. I just I can't imagine the best solution is ever to remove a body part. Well, when the body part is almost dead, yeah, that's that's the time well, to take it off. Why? Why do you need to take it off if it's dead? Because if it's dead and it stays attached, yeah, it can lead like toxins into the blood and kill you. Oh, yeah. Why is it toxic? Because it's dead tissue. I don't understand. It's like decomposing on you. Yeah, I suppose that's bad. Um, yeah, of next course that's up, bad. <laughs> yeah, next up on our terrifying list is a device called the Ecresur. Ecresur? Why are all these terrible tools French sounding? I don't know. They had a flair for it, I guess. Uh, in the 19th century, this instrument strangled uterine and ovarian tumors as well as hemorrhoids. 
Its wire loop or chain was placed around the base of the unwanted growth and gradually tightened. That would eventually either cut through the base of the growth or cut off its blood supply until it gave up and dropped off. Doing this was painful, particularly so with hemorrhoids. What is a hemorrhoid? That's on your butt, right? Yes. So that is a blood vessel that gets large and uh-huh. can get a blood clot in it and is super painful. That's why you don't use your phone on the toilet, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a discussion in our house. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, experts of the day argued that the pain of this de- uh, delightful device was short-lived compared with cutting the growth off. So, Doc, mm-hmm. how are these ailments addressed in today's day and age? Well, we sometimes do use, like, the tie-off method for some things. Really? Yeah. But it's under anesthesia, and it's typically with, like, a very precise tool. So you don't use a chainsaw? No. Speaking um, of chainsaws... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but... Sometimes we just cut them open, too. Cut them open? Yes. Why? To let the blood clot out of the hemorrhoid. Well, again, leeches. I love the idea of leeches. I feel like we could just put the leech everywhere. The leech is not going to fix your hemorrhoid. Okay. Well, speaking of chainsaws, apparently they were used for childbirth. Have you ever heard of symphysotomy? So I've heard of it, but we don't do that anymore. I would hope not. This is basically before C-sections were commonplace, and from my understanding, they basically just cut apart a woman's undercarriage to get to things. Yes, they cut apart her frame. We'll say that. Her frame. Okay, yes. The chassis was yes. disassembled yes. with a chainsaw. Yes. I'm, I just, I don't even want to go any further than that. Well, okay. So where I get caught up in this is like, all right, so the baby normally comes out of the opening right. in the chassis, right? right? Yep. So they couldn't figure out that there were other ways than going through that chassis area. Right. I gotcha. So modern day, we go through the abdomen or the right. belly. Cesarean section. Where yes. does the term cesarean come from? I think it was the dude who invented it, but don't quote me that on it. That also sounds French. We. Oui. Yes. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm not going to go any further under the chainsaw. That's terrible. Um, let's see. One device that is no longer used simply from lack of need, I imagine, is the arrow extractor. When a patient in the 1500s sported a protruding arrow, the medical professionals couldn't just yank it out since, of course, it has a barbed arrowhead lodged in the flesh. I imagine this is a similar predicament to the old fish hook debacle, where if you get a hook stuck in your hand or finger, you need to push it all the way through to cut off the barb. I've actually known several people that have had to do that themselves, which is, by the way, one of the... One of the reasons, only one of the reasons, I do not fish. It has nothing to do with the fact that I have zero patience for the sport whatsoever. Yeah, you have like negative zero patience. Exactly. Anyways, back to our embedded arrow predicament. Clearly, it wasn't practical to simply push the arrow all the way through the rest of the body like a fish hook. So instead, they held the shaft of an arrow in a central barrel of a scissor-like arrow remover. But unlike scissors, the sharp edges of the blades faced away from the center So as if having an arrow stuck in you weren't bad enough, the blades cut into the skin so that the arrow's head could then be removed. Like a Roto-Rooter. Yeah. That's terrible. That is terrifying. I can just imagine them bringing this device out as you're wounded on the battlefield or in the castle, and you're like, nope, never mind, Doc. Let's just leave the arrow in. I'll hang some jewelry or something from it, and it'll it'll be a feature now. Yes. We'll just just leave that be. (laughs) Moving away from the grotesque for a moment, I want to touch on something just plain weird. Let me introduce you to the tobacco smoke enema. Oh. This tool was, as you may have already guessed, a device used for the singular purpose of blowing tobacco smoke into one's anus for, quote, medical purposes. 
What purpose may that be? Quote, an insulfation of tobacco smoke into the rectum by enema is the definition of a tobacco smoke enema. The purpose or supposed rationale for this procedure is, your guess, as good as mine. It, it supposedly helped with revitalizing the body. And there was even a huge hoax back in the day of a woman who was said to come back to life after being administered one of these, which just to clarify, the doctor literally blew smoke up a damn woman's ass. Wow. I think you need one of these in your clinic. I Apparently. Can you imagine? Okay, sir, please bend over for me now, okay? Whoosh! <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. That's terrible. That is. Uh, moving right along, we have the terrifying, if not appropriately named, tonsil guillotine. Dun, dun, These dun. instruments were used to perform the common tonsillectomy? Ton, tonsillectomy, there it there is. There you go. During the mid-1800s. Why does a person need to have their tonsils removed? So typically people will have them removed if they've had a lot of infections like strep. Okay. How is it done today? Well, I haven't done it personally, but my understanding is, is they knock the person out and uh-huh. it's like a super hot ice cream scooper. Ew. And they just scoop them on out. Scoop. Scoop. Scoop, scoop, scoop. Okay. Well, back in the 1800s, a doctor would position the tonsils inside the rings of this device and pull the spring-loaded ring. It is basically like a long cigar cutter. Doctors eventually stopped performing the procedure with the guillotine, however, after too many people died of hemorrhaging. There's a lot of blood vessels in the back of the throat. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have the trephine. First used around the early 1600s in pre-modern Europe, these types of devices were hand drills made to cut circular holes in patient skulls. The most common application was attempts to treat epileptic seizures and skull fractures, which why do you, I guess skull fracture is swelling or something? Yeah, so, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of is swelling of the brain internally. There's nowhere to go in the skull, so you have to make some room. Funny you should mention that. Um, They were, however, used to treat trivial conditions like any sort of mental illness, you can imagine, as well. Got to get those devils out. Right. uh, The tool included a metal pin mounted at the center, which made the initial hole. It's basically like a pilot hole on a hole saw. Uh, Once that was set, the doctor could proceed to twist the trephine until it bore a hole. Of course, patients all underwent the procedure without anesthesia, which, is it true there aren't many nerve endings in your head? So there aren't very many nerve endings. There's a lot of blood vessels, though. Okay. So any sort of, like, head injury is massively bloody. I imagine it would still be quite painful to get a hole drilled in your skull. It's actually not too too bad. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, are there any legitimate uses for trepanation today? Yeah, we do it as a, a burr hole, they call it now. Okay. Just to, like we just talked about, leaving more space so the brain that's swelling can have somewhere to go. Does... So if you put a hole in your skull, do you ever, mm-hmm. like, fill it back in? Sometimes. Other times, no? hmm How big is this hole? Like, can you stick a finger in it? I think so. I mean, it I'd, depends on if it's a kid or an adult. I'm going to keep moving on. I don't want to stick a finger in my Well, head. you don't put it in there. Um, I actually started to go down a rabbit hole with this one and found a strange community of people who still believe there are benefits from trepidation in an otherwise healthy person. They appear to be all part of the new age hippie crowd who experiment with drugs to attain a higher plane of thinking, man. And according to some, drilling a hole in your head will help achieve this new level of consciousness. Think about it, man. As a kid, we're born with our skulls not fused together. It allows our brain to swell with understanding. Then as we get older, our skulls clamp down on our brain and make us contained in our way of thinking. If you relieve this oppression of the mind with a hole in your skull, you can unlock a new way of thinking. Or just not protect your brain. 
So you don't recommend drilling a hole in your skull? You know, I do not recommend that. Okay, well, moving on to something more mainstream is the reduction device, dating all the way back to the 5th century BC. Hippocrates, as we mentioned before, is considered the father of Western medicine. He, is, he also detailed the oldest known method for treating a dislocated shoulder. He developed a massive wooden ladder-like device across which the injured arm was slung and then pulled downward with significant force. In the 16th century, French royal surgeon, again with the French, French royal surgeon Ambroise Pierre reintroduced Hippocrates, Hippocrates, Hippocrates <laughs> method, Hippocrates' method. Wow. And is still used today, albeit, I imagine, without a giant wooden contraption in your office. No, we don't have a giant wooden contraption. Okay. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research-tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. The next item we have on our list is one I know that you actually use frequently because you love to gross me out about this. It all started with medieval surgeon Abu al-Qasim al-Zahwa, who transformed the act of circumcision from a religious ritual into a surgical procedure. He invented several medical instruments and is believed to have been the first to use scissors in any type of surgery. He favored these over the use of knives in circumcision as he said they made the cut more even. <laughs> Your face right now is everything. Do you use scissors when circumcising? So I do not. I use a device called a gomco. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're amazing. It's basically what you do is you pull the foreskin over this <sighs> bell-shaped device uh-huh and then you clamp it down to create a seal and then you cut off the foreskin and then voila uh-huh um okay wow i feel like we've sunk pretty <laughs> far for being a park car podcast talking about circumcision but anyways last item on our list is the most terrifying to me personally the lobotomy during the mid-19th century, the psychosurgery field took off when the hallmark neuropsycho... I can't even pronounce this. Uh, when the hallmark neuropsychiatric case... I Why is that so hard to pronounce? I just love watching you struggle. Yeah, thanks. I'm just going to leave all this in here. Uh, the case of Phineas Gage became yes. known, right? So Phineas, a 25-year-old railroad worker who is a tamper, suffered a severe accident. As a tamper, it was his job to place dynamite down holes drilled into the bedrock. This was done to clear the way for railroad tracks and was done by dropping a stick of dynamite down the hole and tamping it down into place with a long, heavy steel rod. Now, unfortunately for our friend Phineas, as he was prodding the explosive, the charge went off, sending the, lod, the rod clean through his head and landing 30 feet away. To the surprise of everyone who witnessed this, Gage just stood up and walked away from the incident without any complaint. But to those who knew him well, Gage was not the man they had known before. Once an upstanding model citizen, he had become easily irritable, disinhibited, and extremely liable. He's liable. Oh my gosh. 
Gage's physician followed his case closely and published the following description. Quote, Previous to his injury, although untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. The case of Phineas Gage spurred an entire field of research into the specific function of different parts of the brain, and how this might be used in the treatment of various psychiatric conditions. Enter Swiss psychiatrist Gottlieb Buchart. Working with a small cohort of schizophrenic patients, Buchart removed segments of a patient's brain to treat the disease and to change the patient. In his words, from a, quote, an excited to a quieter demented schizophrenic person. Yeah. Not a great part of our history. No, Burkhardt eventually abandoned his research after the publication of his results were regarded as inhumane. However, in the early 1930s, psychosurgery experienced a sudden revival. In Europe, Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz refined Burkhardt's surgical technique by inserting a small surgical rod into the brain. No need to cut it open. Now you just shove an ice pick in there. The instrument could then be used to cavitate areas of white matter with the express intent of altering a patient's disposition. However, it wasn't until neurologist Walter Freeman in the United States came across the procedure that things really got bad. He modified the procedure so that it required nothing more than a small one-centimeter burr hole that could be drilled superior to the zygomatic arch for the insertion of the device. That's the eye socket, right? Yes. Okay. Freeman eventually found himself mesmerized by the procedure that required nothing more than a simple ice pick that could be tapped through the orbital bone and swept across the prefrontal cortex. So screw drilling a hole. Now we're just going to literally hammer an ice pick into your eye socket. Yes. He quickly and eagerly adopted his methodology in the late 1930s. Freeman had simplified the lobotomy so much that he began performing the procedure without the help of his colleagues and without the sterile field that was often required in the operating room. Now, first of all, what is a sterile field? So it's basically everything that you set your tools on, you mm -hmm. want it to be clean. Right. Or sterile. Sure. So instead of like laying out all of the nice clean tools, it sounds like he's like, whatever. Yeah, he just took an ice pick that he found in the freezer and just went to work. And maybe we could even reuse it on the next one. Most likely. Uh, Freeman continued with his passionate crusade to popularize the transorbital lobotomy throughout North America. On September 4th, 1936, at George Washington University, Freeman performed the first lobotomy in the U.S. on Alice Hood Hamat, a woman diagnosed with depression. Hamat had attempted to withdraw her consent the night before the operation due to concerns about her head being shaved prior to... So Freeman simply told her that he wouldn't need to shave her head. On the day of the operation, she continued to resist, and she struggled while she underwent sedation and anesthesia. When Hamat awoke post-operatively, she stated that she was happy and did not mind that Freeman had shaved her head because she's basically brain dead now. Well, not brain dead, but personality change, that's for sure. Yeah, six days after the operation, Hamad experienced language difficulties, disorientation, and agitation. But she returned home, and Freeman considered the outcome obviously a success. So much so that in the coming years, tens of thousands of patients underwent the procedure, many of whom had no symptoms of schizophrenia or any psycho uh, issue whatsoever. In fact, many were normal children. 
Ugh. Howard Dully was an 11-year-old boy who liked riding his bicycle and playing chess. He occasionally fought with his brother, disobeyed his parents, and stole sweets from the kitchen cupboards. He had a weekly paper route and was saving up to buy a record player. He was an average child, perhaps a little unruly, but nothing that would strike one as exceptional for a boy of his age. But Howard Dully would soon become exceptional for another reason. Barely two months after his first meeting, his father and stepmother had him admitted to a private hospital in his hometown of San Jose. When Dully awoke the next day, his eyes were swollen and bruised, and he was running a high fever. He recalls a severe pain in his head and the discomfort of his hospital gown, which gaped open at the back. He had no idea what had happened. Quote, I was in a mental fog. I was like a zombie. I had no awareness of what Freeman had done. What he didn't know was that he had been subjected to a lobotomy. It was a truly horrific practice. He was 11 because he was unruly. Finally, the lack of evidence supporting the lobotomy caught up with Freeman. It wasn't until chlor chlorpromazine? Mm-hmm. Chlorpromazine. Ah, that's the one. Was introduced into the psychopharmaceutical pharmaceutical pharmaceutical market that the lobotomy was truly depopularized. Chloropromazine. Pretty close was the first psychotherapeutic drug that had been approved to treat schizophrenia with a positive effect. And during its first year on the market, it was administered to an estimated 2 million patients. With a safer, more reliable option now readily available for the entire medical community, the lobotomy officially and thankfully fell out of favor. And we do still use chlorpromazine today. Okay. But uh, I thought you were going to say the lobotomy and I was going to be horrified. <laughs> no, that would be pretty terrible. Do you remember uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes. With Jack Nicholson? Uh, right, Jack Nicholson? Yeah. yeah. And they lobotomize him. Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, it's so terrifying that that was a thing that yeah. parents would knowingly take their kid in to get this done because they were unruly. Mm. Yep. Awful. So that is a truly horrifying episode of the worst devices in medical history. Thanks very much to our in-house doctor, Dr. Nikki. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys, we will see you on Friday. Chris should be back in the studio for our regularly scheduled program. Um, in the meantime, please head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Head over to Patreon. With You can actually uh, go to uh, overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club. That'll redirect you to patreon.com slash overcrest where you can support the show and become a member of the drivers club. Until then, we will see you Friday. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country roads, take me home. Moonshine, teardrop in my eye, country road.
day.